Some say that the whole of Jewish philosophy, all of it, has one subject, divine providence. That's all there is to talk about. There is nothing else that can be talked about. The whole of the Kabbalah is only talking about divine providence. So you can imagine that in 45 minutes we're not going to do a big deal. Well, we can get a couple of ideas out that I think are important ideas. First of all, <coughs> providence means what God does, not what he can do. Providence is not a concept of power, it's a concept of activity. God doesn't do everything he can do. His powers, capacities, go far beyond what he chooses to do. Providence is only a matter of what he does. Now, what does he do? Well, if you look in different books, you'll find what seem to be different descriptions. I'm inclined to think they're not really different, but it's a matter of controversy. Indeed, there's a controversy whether or not there's a controversy. That's how complicated it is. So I'm giving you one view, the strongest view. Divine providence includes, this is not the whole of it, but includes, that everything that happens in the physical world is caused by God's will. There's more than that, but it includes at least this. Everything that happens in the physical world is caused by God's will. This is going to cause a problem. The problem is this. Everything that happens in the physical world includes the movements of human bodies. Your body is a physical thing, and if movements are physical events, it's something that happens in the physical world. So if God's will causes everything that happens in the physical world, that includes the movements of your body. Well, we usually think that at least some things a person does, he's responsible for. If I give charity to a poor person, I want credit for that. If uh, someone commits murder, then we blame him for that and punish him for that. But now, it's the body that gives charity. The hand has to deliver the coin. And it's the body that causes the murder. The finger has to squeeze the trigger. And if it's God that's causing the body to move, then really I'm a puppet on the end of a bunch of strings. And God is pulling the strings. And the strings contract my muscles and relax my muscles and cause the neural firings in the brain. All of the transactions that are part of a bodily motion. That's all caused by God. So if that's all caused by God, how can I be responsible for my actions? The problem is a collision between divine providence on the one hand and our being responsible for our actions on the other hand. And since the Torah says both of them, so this will be an internal contradiction in what the Torah teaches us. It says God controls, not only controls, but causes everything that happens in the physical world, according to those books that I'm quoting, and in my view all the books agree, but anyway. And it also says that we're responsible for our actions. Now, the answer here comes in three steps. 
And because I was trained as a logician, it's of some concern to me that you follow the three steps and that you realize the first two steps alone don't do the job. You have to have the third step. So here's step one. What I said was that God's will causes everything that happens in the physical world. Now, if you're alert and thoughtful and critical, you'll say to yourself, listen, he put a qualification on there. He said everything that happens in the physical world. He put a limit limit on it. He didn't just say God's will causes everything that happens. No, he said everything that happens in the physical world. Why did he put on that limitation? Why is he holding it down to just the physical world? Obviously, he thinks that the physical world is not everything. There must be something else besides the physical world. And there the situation is different. Because if the physical world were everything, or if everywhere it had the same condition that God's will causes everything that happens, it would need the limitation to the physical world. So, since what I did say is, God's will causes everything that happens in the physical world, what I'm implying is that there is a somewhere else, let's call it the spiritual world, just as a name. And the condition over there is different. Okay, now it's quiz time. Think carefully. What are we implying about the spiritual world? Again, here's the statement we've got on the table. God's will causes everything that happens in the physical world. Aha, the physical world. So the spiritual world has to be different. We're different in what way? What are we implying about the situation in the spiritual world? There could possibly be something where God is in control. Very well done. Very well done. That's exactly right. Not in the spiritual world God's will causes nothing that you can't infer. All you can infer is that the spiritual world is a mixed bag. In the spiritual world there may be some things, some elements. In fact, there should be some elements that God's will doesn't, uh, doesn't cause. But there may be other elements that it does. In other words, what we said about the physical world is that God's will blankets the physical world. Blankets it. Completely exhausts it. So in the spiritual world, we deny that. No. In the spiritual world, God's will does not blanket, completely exhaust. Which means there could be holes. There are holes in the spiritual world where God's will doesn't, doesn't cause things to happen. But other things in the spiritual world, God's will does cause things to happen. Just not blanket. That's step one. That hasn't even addressed the problem. Step two. One element in the spiritual world is, is the human soul. And humans, human decisions take place in the soul, and three human decisions are events in the spiritual world that are not caused by God. The deciding, just the deciding, that's a soul event, it's an event in the spiritual world, and it is an event that God's will doesn't cause. That's step two. Now, I hope it's clear why step one and step two do not solve the problem. Okay, I have a spiritual world, and there are holes in it. Places where God's will doesn't cause things to happen. What are those holes? Maybe it's the only hole. 
It's an interesting side question. But one of those holes is where human souls are, and those human souls are making decisions, and those decisions are free, God's will doesn't cost them. Why doesn't that solve our problem? They're not caused by anything. Those free decisions at, at this point are not caused by anything. Are they done through physical action? Or just through what mind? done? Yeah. They're, they're actual decisions. The decision is an event that takes place in the soul. According to the description I'm giving, it's an event that takes place in the soul. It's a spiritual event. Correct. It's not the physical one. Why doesn't it solve the problem? Go back. Think what was the problem. What was the problem? How can I be responsible for what? Well, yes, but I mean, what particulars? What particulars were there that I was worried about being responsible for? Actions. Actions, right? Particular acts, giving charity, murder, right? What was the problem? Because what gives charity? Well, but not you. Who's you? The body, the arm, the hand, the fingers. What causes the death? The finger pulling the trigger. The body. Right? The problem was the body moves, and I want responsibility for that. So one second, so now what do I got? Free will in the soul, in spiritual worlds. What's that got to do with the body? We haven't begun to address the problem. The problem is your soul can't give charity. The, the fingers have to move. So let's say the soul is over there in Never Never Land. And it's making its decisions. What's it got to do with the body in this world that hands over the coin? This guy pulls the trigger, right? His fingers squeeze it. That's God pulling the strings. So what do I care if his soul is someplace else making decisions? The action is carried out by the body. I haven't yet, I haven't yet addressed the problem, which is how can I be responsible for what happens when the body moves? If God is making the body move, so these two decisions, I've got three will in the picture already. Doesn't help because three will disconnected from what the bodies do. So I don't yet have a solution to my problem. Okay, now it's time for the klutz to enter the picture. In Shiva's there's a certain thing called the klutz kasha. This means that Kasha is the person who can't walk straight. You know, just, he's just completely mixed up. How about this for an answer? It's the decision in the soul that causes the body to do what it does. That's why I'm responsible. The decision is free. He said that. The decision is not caused by God. And now, when I decide, when my soul decides, in soul land, in soul world, decides to give charity, that causes the body the fingers to reach in, bring out the coin, and give it to the poor person. And that's why I'm responsible for what the body does. Because the body is caused to do what it does by the soul. Why doesn't that solve the problem? Because the, the soul, what is the soul? Worse than that, huh? I mean, where do we start from? We started from the idea that God causes everything that happens in the physical world. Now you're telling me the soul causes it? So then God's not causing it. They're not solving the problem, they're just turning your back on the problem. So here's where we stand. The soul is up there in the soul world in another universe. And it's making free decisions. And the body is down here moving around because God is pulling the strings. I still don't see how I could be responsible for what the body does. Because it's being pushed around by God. You make decisions, but only if it works, it's depending on God's what to happen, right? Mm, I think you're going the right direction, though the words aren't quite right, yeah? You said God, we, we explained that God allows us to have free will. Free will would mean that our souls 
are allowing us to make the decisions. Now, once our souls make those decisions, God will enable us to carry them out. Oh, okay. Now we're getting further down the track. We're getting further down the track. That's the idea. That's the idea. The key element that's been left out, although to most people this is so far they don't realize they left anything out, is this. Yes, God is making everything that happens in the physical world happen. He's the one whose will causes it. But how does God decide what to cause? How does he decide what should happen? He's doing it. But what are the materials that go into his decision? What to cause to happen? My hand goes up, or my fingers take out the coin, or his fingers squeeze on the trigger. All that is God's doing. But how does he decide what to cause which bodies to do? And the answer is that part of the material for the decision, not the whole, but part, part of the material for the decision is what the soul decides in soul, in soul world. So a physical action of a human being works like this. There are two stages. Stage one, the soul makes a decision in the soul world, and then God takes note of that decision and uses that decision as part of his input to decide what to cause the body to do. And indeed, part of it is a little bit of an understatement. The vast, vast majority of the time, God has a policy that the vast, vast majority of the time, God will cause the body to do what the soul decides. That's the way he wants the world to run. That's how he set it up. So that he, that's his policy. He's chosen this policy. That the vast, vast majority of the time, he will cause the body to do what the soul decides. So, I'm deciding. Shall I lift my arm in ten seconds or not? Oh boy, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Six seconds left. Shall I raise it or shall I not raise it? One of these tough decisions. Three, two, one. Ah! Then it goes on. Right. Now, our picture of this process is as follows. The ten seconds was spent in the soul, and the soul was flipping back and forth. Finally, the soul decided up, and then God pulled the strings, and the hand went up. Why? Because God has a policy of almost always causing the body to do what the soul decides. There are exceptions. There are exceptions. Uh, you're in the middle of a concert, and uh, everybody's dead silent, and you have to sneeze. And you say, no, please, I don't want to do this. Stop! And you sneeze anyhow, because the body isn't listening. That is to say, God is causing the body to do against what you decide. Too bad! Or you over-exercise, you get a cramp in your leg, and uh, you know, your, your soul says, kick! And the leg says, boom! <laughs> and it just doesn't, doesn't kick, because God is causing the body to rebel against what your, uh, you know, what, what your soul says. Or you're falling asleep over whatever project, you know, it's, I've got to stay awake. Bang! <laughs> and you're out. So not always does God cause the body to do what the soul decides. Not always. But the vast majority of the time he does, because that's the policy that he has chosen. Now, let's come back to giving charity. So the guy asks me for a shekel. And I think to myself, look at those shifty eyes. I wonder, is he really poor? Or is he laughing up his sleeve all the way to his Rolls Royce? 
You know, it's hard to tell with these guys. And then I say to myself, oh, that's your Yetzirah, don't be silly. He wouldn't be standing here asking for shekels if he had a Rolls Royce. Uh, maybe he's renting the Rolls Royce. So you go back and forth. Finally, I say, oh, yes, I guess I better, I mean, so that's what I have to do it. Yes, I'll give him the shekel. That's the soul's contribution. The deliberation and the decision. Now God, following the policy that he almost always follows, causes my body to deliver the shekel. Here's the key question. What would have happened if I had decided not to give the shekel? Well, God has a policy of almost always, 99.9999% of the time, causing the body to do what the soul decides. If I had decided not to give the shekel, God would have caused the body not to give the shekel. That's enough for me to be responsible. That's enough. That the body will do what I decide. The fact that I don't force it to do, I don't cause it to do, is not, is not necessary. It's enough that 99.99% of the time, it will do what I decide. And I know this. I know it from experience. I know from experience that when I decide to do things, the body carries it out. So I'm responsible because of God's policy. His policy. That I, that the body should carry out what the, what the person has decided. Yeah. Um. So this whole thing is true, that mean that basically when we're punished or, or judged, we're judged based on, or rewarded, we're judged based on uh, the decisions that someone makes, not on the actions that we do. That's right. So therefore, if someone would say, uh, go to kill someone and not succeed, and someone would go to kill someone and would succeed, why would the person who succeeds get punished and the person who does not succeed not get punished? They both made the same decision. This is exactly right. What you are now raising is an extraordinarily difficult problem in contemporary philosophy to which no one has a solution in contemporary philosophy, but we have a solution. The problem is a problem called moral luck. Bernard Williams wrote about this, Thomas Nagel, others. Let's take your case. A shoots a bullet at B. If the a, he's got good aim. A, a has excellent aim. So, you know, he, he's got him lined up in the, in the crosshairs. But... If there'll be a breeze, the breeze could blow the bullet aside. If the air will be still, the bullet will fly true and kill B. Now, who controls the breeze? Certainly not A. He's not in charge of the breeze. So, in one case, A shoots and kills B. In another case, A shoots and there's a breeze, blows the bullet aside, and doesn't kill B. Is there any difference in the guilt of A, the crime of A, the... the, the, the uh, degraded nature of A, the bad values of A. The only difference in the two cases is a breeze. Nevertheless, we say the one is a murderer and the other one is only guilty of attempted murder. And in the legal system, they get very different treatment. And the problem in, in ethics is that morally, when we think about it, we tend to have different attitudes towards these people. This guy actually killed somebody. That guy only tried. Now, when we ca- carry out your reflections... But the difference was a breeze. And the breeze had nothing to do with him. So why should I feel differently about the murderer and the attempted murderer? No, as far as people... Huh? What's that? The shooting had nothing to do with him. Okay, but I'm, I'm just illustrating the same problem can be raised without our metaphysics. I'm saying it's a problem in philosophy, right? So, uh, it becomes very... And uh, Thomas Nagel, who is a great contemporary philosopher, says he doesn't think there's a solution to this problem. 
he thinks our moral intuitions just contradict one another. We caught ourselves in a contradiction. And it means either we live with the contradiction with embarrassed silence, or we give up one of them, which is very painful, because both are very strong intuitions. Now, from our point of view, it becomes better. Because when we, we have a set of laws, how to treat people, and you're right, the laws treat people, treat a murderer differently from an attempted murderer. But the laws come from God. The same God who is determining whether or not the bullet will hit B or not. So when God determines whether or not the bullet will hit B, he's just sending a signal to us what he wants done for this person. For whatever reason he wants it done. Not because of this particular action. You follow me? It could be that A shoots and the, and the bullet blows aside. Not because he's less of a criminal. Not because he's less vicious. Not because he's less evil. But God wants him alive for next week where he'll do something else that's very important for history. So he arranges that the bullet should hit it. In other words, it's all providence. Here is all providence. We have an answer to why we treat the person differently. Yeah, but not, not only in our, in our judicial system do we treat people differently, but we say that God, I don't know before, I don't know if maybe it's not true, that God um, will, 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 does mercy for us by not holding us accountable if we, if we try to do it like if you, if you try to eat pork and you don't do it, right? So you're not going to get the idea because you didn't eat the pork. Right. So let me tell you something. Let, let me answer your education. Let me answer your education. Uh, uh, what, what he's quoting is a statement of the Talmud. The person who decided to do a transgression and was stopped by forces beyond his control does not get penalized today. Whereas if he decides to do a mitzvah and is stopped by forces beyond his control, gets a reward for it. But there are exceptions. There are exceptions. If the, if the Jew has done that transgression twice in the past, then the third time, just thinking to do it, even if he doesn't carry it out, the punishment uh, applies. And if the Jew thinks even once to worship an idol, the punishment is there on the first time. So, what's the message here? The message here is, that you are punished or rewarded for the thought depending upon how um, how much the thought expresses your identity versus how much the thought is just an accident for you. Uh, a normal, ordinary Jew who's oriented in the right direction, every evader is not part of his character. Every transgression is not part of his character. So if he has a thought, even a decision to do, it, to do a transgression, it's an, it's an accidental thing. It's a momentary impulse. It's a momentary problem with the Yitzhahara. It's not, doesn't express who he is. But if he's done it twice already, then you can't say that on the third time. So on the third time already, it's more essential. Then he will be punished even for just the thought. And he makes look for an ordinary Jew. That is an expression of who he is. Once he thinks it out of Zohar, but I worship, he split possessions. He split possessions over to a different orientation. Then indeed, that thought will be expressive of his essence. So, it's not a question now of whether you carry it out or not. It's a question of how essential the thought is to your essence, to your identity. That's really the rule over there. But if it's God that has complete control of dividing us, making you do it the first time, then whether you transgress or not, then even the, then even the thought is a thing of your essence, because the thought is, is the only thing that's forcing that. The, the, the thought 
is what's causing God to allow you or not allow you to do this. No, that doesn't follow. No, now you're out on the limb. Now, now you're fishing, I think. Now you're, it, it, the fact that he causes my body to carry it out, the fact that he causes my body to carry it out could be for any number of reasons. It could be that he carries it out and it's public and people see it and then they shame me and it stops me from having those thoughts in the future. It could be that I, that I succeed and I lead other people to have a bigger temptation and that's because their free will should be challenged. There could be any number of reasons why God uh, causes the body to carry it out. Not just because it is or is not essential to me. That, that's limited. That's having a narrow view of how, how God runs the world. Okay. So now, we have no problem between God's running the world on the one hand and my being responsible even for what my body does on the other hand. Now, one of the reasons this is important is this. When people experiment with religious ideas, it's quite dangerous because almost every idea has limits. It has certain limits, and if it gets out of control, it can cause trouble. And uh, especially people who are enthusiastic and uh, excited, and they find an idea that seems beautiful and interesting and valid and right, and aren't aware of the limitations of the idea, carry it to unacceptable extremes. When you appreciate that God is running the world, nothing happens by accident. Everything is in his hands, except for my free decisions. But everything else, my health and my wealth and my, my strength and my power and abilities and peace and war. So, a person can become passive. He's running the world. It's all in his hands. Why should I pretend? Isn't it dangerous to pretend that I can control anything? I don't have any control over anything that happens. Here's how it works with Christian scientists, with whom we have a war like almost everybody else does. You're sick. Not you. George is sick. George is sick. So now, should George go to the doctor or not? Well, here's what George says. Listen, God's running the world, right? God is making me sick. And if I get better, it will only be because God wants me to get better. So let's see. What does God want? Does God want me sick or does God want me well? If God wants me sick, then the doctors aren't going to help. The doctors can't fight against God. No matter what they do in the hospital, if God wants me sick, I'm going to stay sick. And if God wants me well, then I'm going to get well even without doctors. God doesn't need doctors. He can do it without them. So why should I go to a doctor? Indeed, if I go to a doctor, that proves I don't really believe. It's impiety. I don't really believe. Because if I really believed, I would appreciate that God is the one who's taking care of it and the doctors are no consequence whatsoever. This is the kind of question that we used to put on qualifying exams for graduate students in philosophy. And if they didn't know the answer to this question, then we suggested that they drive buses, you know, or do something else, but not go on in philosophy. Now, I've given you the answer to this question. I just didn't put it in these words. I'll ask the question again and see if you can answer it on the basis of what I told you. George, considering recruitment into the Christian scientists, says, I'm sick. I want to get better. But, everything is in God's hands. God is controlling everything. If God wants me to be sick, then I'm going to be sick no matter what any doctor will do. 
No doctor can outwit God and, and stronger than God make me healthy when God wants me well. And if God wants me well, then I'll be well even without the doctors. I don't need the doctors. So why would I go to a doctor? What good could it possibly do me? It's totally irrelevant. Now what I told you this afternoon is ridiculous, right? The conclusion is ridiculous. <laughs> you know what a philosopher is? A philosopher is a person who, after he knows the conclusion is ridiculous, still wants to know why. That's a philosopher. Right? Most people, when they know the conclusion is ridiculous, you know, they go get a sandwich. You know? I know what to do. Leave me alone. But a philosopher wants to know why it's ridiculous. So don't just tell me it's ridiculous. I know it's ridiculous. We all agree on that. But why is it? Where, where does the person go wrong? But God also allowed doctors to exist and medicine to be developed during the centuries. So you could also say it's from God. And you could say that this the so I can benefit from it. You could say, ah, oh, that's an extra step. That's an extra step. The eighth of her is also from God. Even the Kodesh is also from God. Maybe this is just a temptation. But unless there is specific Allah that prohibits us from benefiting from Logic also is a source of, of Torah. You know, if something's clearly logical, then that's, uh, that's, that should be good enough. Mishpat. Mishpat is, a, is something which logic dictates. If the Torah hasn't been given, you know, by, by, by logic. Yeah, well, no, you're not, you're not answering the question. You're bringing the term from the outside. Okay. Where does the argument go wrong? The argument here has a false step. And the falsity of the step is in what I told you already this afternoon. Yeah. So there's nothing to strive for. If he's doing that, you can say it for anything. You can say, uh, why, why do I have to pray to God? Why do God stay there? God knows. And what's the point of that? So you, there's no point in serving God if there's nothing for you. Okay. You're 100% right. The way we put this problem in, in, in philosophy graduate school was, uh, why would you ever get your, your brakes fixed? Because either you're going to have an accident or you aren't. If you're going to have the accident, then fixing the brakes won't help. And if you're not going to have the accident, then you don't need to fix your brakes. So why would you have to fix your brakes? It's a problem of fatalism. But you see, what, let, let me just explain logically what you're doing. You're bringing me more proofs that the conclusion is, is absurd. I agree with your proofs. I agree with your proofs. But you haven't shown me where this argument breaks down. All you've shown me is that the conclusion is wrong. You can show it from another, another direction. Uh, there will be no point in striving for anything, and we all know you do have to strive, so the conclusion has to be wrong. I agree with you, the conclusion is wrong. But where's the breakdown in the logic? Here's the logic again. God is running the world. If he wants me to be well, I'm going to be well even without doctors. He doesn't need doctors, does he? Is that true? If God doesn't want me well, he wants me sick, then I'll be sick. Even if I go to doctors, the doctors can't fight against God, can they? Is that true? Right. So if so, then the doctors are of no help. That's the conclusion. Well, where did it go wrong? It's the Tzernor diet. If he wanted the, the shekel to be in the Shnor's hand, it was flown or whatever. But you have, to, you have to put your hand into, you have to make that decision, you have to put your hand into your pocket and give it. Yeah, but that's not true. But the government wants to be here for a short period of time because we need to stay here. So, I'll be here for the next day, and I'll be here for the next week, and repeat the argument for the different, parts, different periods of time. So, there's no piece to overcome that How do I know that? Isn't that just the yitz of her trying to pull me down? That means God's really not in control, but it's up to me. That's what the Christian scientists will say. When we say that God makes his decisions, I saw what we do. Right. Both premises, I said. Isn't it right? Said, yes, it's right. They're both wrong. Listen to what the premise says. If God wants me well then I'll be well, even if I don't go to the doctor. Who says so? Who says so? I'd rather. 
Maybe the whole reason God made me sick is, for me, is to get me to go to the doctor. That's what he wants. So that, if I go to the doctor, then he'll make me well. And if I don't go to the doctor, he'll leave me sick. Who says God's will is absolute, irrespective of what I do? That's the failure in the argument. Again, the premise to which 30 seconds ago you all nodded your heads. The premise was, if God wants me well, then I'll be well even if I go to, to go to doctors. That's not necessarily true. He may want me well only if I go to a doctor. And he may want me sick if I don't go to a doctor. And if that's what he wants, then everything depends upon me in the sense that he has made up his mind to act this way if I go to a doctor, and that way if I don't go to the doctor. What he does depends... What he, uh, let's put this way. he has decided to act on me according to what I do. Depends is a tricky word. It's, it's, it's causality. I don't want causality. Yet. He may have decided to act on me according to what I do. In which case, what I do is going to be very important. He's doing it, but why he's doing it is because of what is, is according to what I do. And therefore, it can be very important to go to the doctor. Now we'll ask her a question. Should I go or shouldn't I go? Let's see what the rules say. The rules say go to the doctor. We may not go to the doctor. But I have to avoid the argument first. Hear what I'm saying? Okay, so this means that we do have to take responsibility for our lives. We cannot sit back and say, since God is running the world, he's going to take care of me. Even, even to limit ourselves. Now, we have a problem. To limit ourselves to pious, pious means of dealing with problems. To limit ourselves, that's where it will be wrong. So, a person, God forbid, is ill and says, listen, God's running the world and I'm ill. So, uh, I'm going to dive in very long and very deep and I'm going to give extra money to charity. And I'll say Psalms and I'll even learn some tomorrow. Oh, that's torture. But it's better than being sick. So therefore, I'll, I'll, I'll learn some tomorrow. And, gosh, if I do all of that for God, surely, surely, He'll make me well. That's a big mistake. Why? Because I have to look into the rule book. And the rule book says that you should go to a doctor. Now, I didn't say you should leave out the davening, or leave out the charity, or leave out the, the tillum, the psalms, or leave out the study of the Talmud. Do all of those, and go to the doctor. Because, even though God is running the world, he runs the world very largely, not 100%, but very largely according to what we do. So we have to know, what are the rules here? According to which of my actions does God decide to respond? How did he decide to respond according to which of my actions? God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people after the golden calf. Moses says, no, you can't do that. If you do it, plot me out of your book. I don't want to be here. Moses gives a whole bunch of arguments. And God says, okay, I won't. Now, what happened? Did Moses change God's mind? That's absurd. Leave that to the biblical critics in the universities. That's childish. What happens here is, God is teaching us the conditions under which he reacts this way or that way. What he's telling you is, there can be a condition under which, without prayer there's disaster, and with prayer there's salvation. He's teaching you that prayer is one of the conditions to which he responds in what we do. He hasn't changed, he has a policy. Without prayer there's disaster, and with prayer there's not disaster. 
That's his policy. Now, you, of course, if you pray, so then you, you shift him over to the other policy. Policy that's been there from the beginning. But he's teaching us what his policies are by interacting with us in these ways. So, man, could you summarize again why we should go to the doctor? Yeah. The, the uh, argument, the wrong argument says, if God wants to be well, then I'll be well even without doctors. That's wrong. Maybe what he wants is that I should be well by going to doctors. That's what he wants. Okay, so the failed argument says, if he wants to be sick, I'll be sick even if I go to doctors. No, maybe what he wants is that I should be sick unless I go to doctors. In other words, the failed argument paints God's will as completely independent of what I do. If he wants to be well, he wants to be well under all conditions, no matter what else happens. Who says so? Why must God's will be totally independent? This is independent. God's will depends upon what we do because he has a policy of running the world according to the decisions that we make. Okay. Um, you said before that decisions are made in the soul. Right. Um, is this all decisions or is this only like what we would call the here of free will decisions? I, that's a good point. Um, I'm thinking of free decisions. Now, if there are decisions that aren't free, and then you could debate whether you should call them decisions, and I call them decisions, whatever they are, that's a, a, a gray area. Maybe they belong in the body. I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. They belong in the body. So yeah. Got a bit of a breakdown here. Why? Because you're saying then also you wouldn't, you wouldn't have responsibility for that at all. Of course not. In fact, there are those who want to talk about animals making decisions. So the animal makes decisions. Obviously, it's a, it's a capacity of the body. They're not responsible for what they do. They're not free decisions. Yeah, so My old decision very often that can be changed from a regular decision into a moral decision. It's very hard to know whether, like, uh, is that putting on a pair of socks in the morning? No, uh, I don't think so. There, no, no, now you're not confusing two things. Putting on socks in the morning is a free decision, but it's inconsequential. It can, it can change, though. Let's say your mother likes black socks. Yeah, but this is not relevant to this issue. You're talking about important free decisions and trivial free decisions. That doesn't make them not free because they're trivial. I know there are people who say this, but I think they're wrong. I, I've heard people who say, the only freedom you have is between good and bad. No, so that's not true. When there's a moral involved, so then it's, what, then it's something which counts. Correct. If there's no morals involved in the decision. Then? So then the decision is free, but then it wouldn't be a decision in the soul. Why not? Why not? You say no decision still could be in the soul. Because they're free. Even if it's inconsequential. Sure. Sure. I don't see any difference in terms of the source or the power or the ability between important free decisions and trivial free decisions. Free decisions are free decisions. And that would be in the soul. That would be in the soul. Then if there are unfree decisions, if animals make decisions, that's another matter. That may be, should be. The soul is playing a part in something that has nothing to do with the soul. Just it could be. That's, where it is. that's right. Could be. Could be. And you could use a bracious for a paperweight. And all you're using is the fact that it weighs a pound. And you could use the rock for the paperweight also. It feels hard to say that about the soul. No. Okay. If you can do evil with the soul, you should be able to do trivial things with the soul. It's a calvacolor. Yeah. And if that's not good enough, let's leave. Yeah. I don't really understand the whole idea of the... Are you saying the soul is acting on like a spiritual plane while we're in this world? I, I never saw it as a separate thing. I don't, I, I don't understand that sort of 
that picture that the soul is like in a spiritual plane making decisions for our physical body, but it's still part of us, right? Well, the word part here is going to, is, is going to cause the trouble. Um, the human being is a compound. The human being is a compound. A compound of body and soul. In a certain sense, body and soul are related to, uh, to each other like uh, two peas in a pod. It's not like the hardware and software that's in your computer, where there's a thorough integration between the two of them. It's not like your height and your weight, which are both properties of your body, both aspects of the same thing. No, these are two separate things, two separate entities. Now, they're related to one another in certain ways, and they're coordinated with one another in certain ways. But that's all. So that, for example, when, when, when death occurs, the body disintegrates in the ground, and the soul is preserved in another place. It isn't like, you know, your leg or your arm or your neck. They go to the grave with the person. The soul is something that's associated with the body, and you are the compound of the soul and the body. But it's a compound, not a complex. The way I'm putting it is my idea. The, the idea itself, I think, is so common and so obvious to people that, uh, that they don't bother to spell it out. But uh, I wouldn't think of this as a, as, a, as a revolution of any kind. Just the way of answering the question, the way a philosopher would put the question. Okay. All right. Um, let me just finish by giving you some examples of how strongly the idea of responsibility is taken in, in our sources and in very obvious open sources. Jacob comes back to Israel and he hears that his brother Esau is coming to meet him. Coming to meet him with 400 men. Those 400 men were not there to roll out the red carpet. He's coming with an army to wipe him out. So, the Torah says, and then Kamara records, that Jacob did three things. He prepared a very elaborate bribe for his brother, sent him gift after gift after gift, with a message, I'm your brother and I'm your, I'm your servant and I'm, I love you and let's have peace. And he prepared for war. He split up into two camps and set up a military strategy. And he prayed to God for salvation. So here you see, Jacob clearly understands that God is the one who's going to do the job. But that doesn't stop him from trying in every way that he can to control the situation and cause a good outcome. We mentioned doctors. The Torah itself says that it is appropriate to go to doctors, and every great Jewish leader in the last generation has used doctors. I know about many of them. I don't imagine that there are any exceptions. Hospitals, doctors, medicines. The most striking example is this. Saul is king of Israel. And he rebels against God. And God says, I'm through with him. I've had it with him. His career is over. So he tells Samuel the prophet, go to Yishai, who lives in Bethlehem, one of his sons is going to be king. Go there, and I want you to anoint one of his sons king. Shmuel says to God, listen, you want me to go to Bethlehem to appoint one of Yishai's sons king? Saul is going to find out about this. And he's not going to like it. 
This is a dangerous mission. Now let's just let's think for a moment, you know. Samuel says to God, he's going to find out and it's dangerous. What would you expect God to answer? You're telling me? I'm God, remember? I know that. Surely I must have taken that into account when I told you to go. But that's not the answer that he gets. The answer that he gets is, it's a good point, I'll tell you what you do. Take an animal with you. If anybody asks you where you're going, tell them you're going to offer a sacrifice. Don't tell anybody that you're going to anoint someone king. So God credits Samuel's objection. An objection that practically is not going to work. That's astounding. But what do you see? Even if you get a direct command from God in person, it's up to you to think, well, how am I going to do this? And if it's going to be difficult, it's quite appropriate to say, but, you know, I mean, where's the money going to come from? And, you, know, uh, where, you know, how will I get through these the offenses? And so on and so So, even though, I mean, if God directly gives the command, you could expect that he'll be responsible for the success of the mission. No, no. I have to worry to myself how I'm going to make it work in practical terms. So even though we stress the concept of providence, that does not free us from responsibility to do our best to control circumstances and produce a certain outcome, because according to our efforts, so God usually will respond to us and cause the world to develop. Okay.